So two weeks ago, we looked at Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 23. And that portion clearly relates to, prepares for the portion we're looking at today, Luke chapter 11, verse 24 to 36. So we're actually going to start reading in verse 14 today. Luke eleven fourteen. Hear God's word. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters when... The unclean spirit has gone out of a person. It passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And, he, and as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the wound that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. Seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when... It is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part 
dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. This good word endures forever, even to today, even for you today. And so as I mentioned two weeks ago, at first, if you look at this text, at first, verse 14 appears like this abrupt shift in since the prior section is dealing with prayer. And, but when you think about it a little more carefully, it actually follows very well. It's not quite as abrupt as it appears at first glance. Because the teaching on prayer in verse 13, if you notice, ends with this amazing, like, culminating promise. And the promise is, if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, if you call, Matthew 7, 1 is the parallel to this. And in Matthew 7, 11, Matthew records Jesus as saying, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Notice Matthew speaks of good things and Luke speaks of the Holy Spirit. It seems, most scholars agree, that Luke has explained and applied Matthew to God's greatest gift and the source of all his other gifts being the Holy Spirit. And so a question for us is, do we pray for the Holy Spirit as God's gift in our lives? It's the the greatest gift. It overshadows the other gifts. And the sense is in that statement, if he's so generous, he'd even give the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit himself, who renews the face of the whole earth, and gives new birth and all spiritual blessings, will he not also give all other good gifts in him? It's like Romans 8, 32, Paul's argument. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things? It's the glorious logic of heaven, as Piper likes to say it, Paul's saying if if God's given us the big gift, Jesus, then surely he'll give us the smaller gifts that we need in him. It's the same thing with the Holy Spirit here. Okay, so that's what Luke says in verse 13. So how does verse 14 effectively follow that? And so Jesus has just assured us we get the Holy Spirit in response to prayer. And now Luke includes this event in which we see the devastating impact of an evil spirit. A demon has taken possession of a man and he's made him mute. And this poor broken down man is in the thrall of the evil spirit. And so I love Sinkin Ferguson's statement here. He says, this man is a a living illustration of life without Jesus Christ. Uh, Of living a life without the privileges and power of the Lord's prayer. Like, he can't pray the Lord's prayer. 
You see, right after Jesus teaches on prayer with the presumption that people prayed audibly back then, especially since it's a community prayer, this man literally cannot pray the Lord's Prayer, but even more than that, he's under the authority of the evil spirit, so he doesn't know the reality of the beauty of living in that kind of relationship with God that you call him my father. With all the privileges associated with that, he does not know that, nor can he. And so we learn from this that we are embroiled in a spiritual war. It's what's behind everything. It's always going on. There's no, there's no ceasefire to that. It's like Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Whatever's going on in your heart, in your family, in our world, there's a spiritual warfare going on behind it all. And so everything Jesus wants us to know and experience in the Lord's prayer here, the devil wants to deprive you of. That's his overall mission military objective. Deprive you of that. As he's doing to this demon-possessed man who's mute. But that's not all the story. It also follows appropriately after verse 13 because we learn that Jesus is more than enough for the devil. In fact, he's come expressly to undo the devil's work with just a little word, as Luther would say in his hymn, Gospel Christ, with just a little word, he casts the demon out of this man. And so then, after the crowds accuse him of doing it by Beelzebub, Jesus explains himself how he does it. He says, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's what's happening. That's what I'm showing you here. So in that way, Jesus reveals that he's the king, the real king coming into our overrun world He's come to exert his kingdom power in our world to overthrow the kingdom of the devil. And he does so by the finger of God. It's a a riveting way to speak. It's an Old Testament way to talk about God's redeeming activity at the Exodus when God's people were in bondage to Pharaoh. A greater exodus is happening here. It's also an Old Testament way of speaking about the powerful working of God's spirit. So this section, the one we're meditating on today, they both unfold what is meant by the inbreaking power of the spirit in this world in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus further explains what he has, what he has to do through the Holy Spirit to save us. And it's very clear what the condition is from which he's saving us. It's to be in the thrall of the bondage to the evil one. It's to be in total absence from intimate belonging and the amazing grace of the Lord's prayer. It's the condition of hell is why he has come to save us. And so Jesus explains what he must do by this stirring parable when he talks about the strong man. He describes the devil like a strong man, really a type of king, and this king is fully armed and vigilant, Jesus says, over his palace and over his goods. 
And so the picture is everything's going smoothly. Everything is fine and orderly and comfortable even. Yet, yet all the while, the people over whom he rules are impervious to their sin and ignorant of the gospel. It's like a, a matrix situation, a 1984 situation. So into that kind of, of bondage, what does it take to undermine that strong one's control? And so Jesus says it takes a stronger one. And this stronger one must come on the scene, attack him, take away his armor, and divide up his spoil, where divide up his spoil is really rescue the people under his power. Just like he rescued the demon-possessed man. It takes a stronger one to face down the strong one, the devil. And so it's really something how Jesus pictures it. He says, I've come to conquer the devil in the power of the Holy Spirit, and I'm gonna do so by entering Jerusalem and, and going to the cross and taking on the sins of my people and descending into the devil's dark palace, death itself, to satisfy our sin sentence and this way blast open the gates of death and resurrect in victory over the dead. And that's the gospel accomplished. And then Jesus conquers the devil in your life, your individual life, in the power of the Holy Spirit by breaking into a hard heart and giving you the miraculous gift of faith and repentance to believe on him, turn from sin and cling to Christ, and that's the gospel applied. And it takes Jesus' work as the stronger one in the power of the Spirit. So all this about the devil being the strong man and keeping his palace and his people in order reminds me of that like, unnerving illustration Michael Horton passes along when he, when he asks this question. He goes, what would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? So we imagine Satan in control of Tupelo. What would it look like? And so he references a famous pastor, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who offered this scenario on a weekly sermon that was also broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. Amazing. Amazing. So Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, where he pastored, all the bars would be closed. Pornography banished. Pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing the children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ was not preached. You see, the devil's happy with anything as long as Christ, the stronger one, isn't made known. If, if orderly, respectable, self-sufficient living will do the trick to deprive us of a living knowledge and experience of the privileges of the Lord's prayer, that's good with the evil one. He just does not know what you know in Christ as he's revealed in scripture. And so what it tells us is Christianity isn't about reforming your life. It's, it's a revolution of government. It's not changing some habits, it's a changing of the guard. And that's why Jesus states the lesson of the parable when he says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
And the sense of that is neutrality is not possible. Like in our news, China is trying to stay neutral about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but the world's saying you can't do that. Like Switzerland knows that. So in this fundamental spiritual war everyone is embroiled in, Jesus says, if you're not gathering with me, you're against me. And that leads into the next parable, which is our particular text today. And Jesus imagines a person who's possessed by a demon, and then someone comes to help and is able to cast the demon out of him. So the demon goes out into waterless places, it says, the places we'd associate with the evil one's influence, places of disorder and desolation and death, and also seems deserted because there's no one else to inhabit there. And so he finds no rest, this poor demon. Therefore, he returns to my house, which is the person from whom he was cast out. And he goes back and he finds it just great. It's swept, it's put in order, neat and tidy, comfortable, a wonderful place to re-inhabit. And so he goes off and he recruits. He recruits seven other spirits more evil than himself. The idea is he wants a stronger presence, a stronger demonic force to resist getting cast out again. He wants to get good and entrenched. And so they all invade and repossess the person so that his condition is far worse than it was before. It's a really scary parable. It's a scary parable. And so we see in this parable, once again, the danger of thinking we stay neutral So even a guy like Jesus speaks about who's had this great spiritual experience, the dramatic effect of the Holy Spirit to drive even a demon out of his life, if such a person does not respond by opening his life up to the stronger one, to to Jesus, then he cleans his life up only to live under the constant threat of the devil returning and exerting even more destructive influence in his life. It's like what Oswald Chambers wrote in his little devotional, 20th century Scottish evangelist. He goes, the most difficult person to deal with is the one who has the smug satisfaction of an experience to which he can refer back, but who is not working it out in his practical life. It's the danger of having some moment in the past where we've said we engaged God, but it hadn't sucked down into our heart to make us different. And it actually works to insulate us from future engagement with God. And so the English commentator Michael Wilcox says the following, it says, salvation means more than reformation. It means revolution. Nature abhors a vacuum. Not only must the strong man be overcome, but the stronger man must have total victory and take possession of the palace. Who's filling your life? Either Christ's gonna take possession or the evil one's gonna have possession. And so we think of that phrase, nature abhors a vacuum. It's a great phrase. It's this famous saying attributed to Aristotle uh, about physics. In Latin, it's horror vacui. And so the thought is that nature, uh, 
the thought is that in nature, voids or empty spaces won't stay unfilled, but will get filled with something. Nothing stays empty. So if you pour water out of a glass, the glass doesn't remain empty. It gets filled up immediately with air. You take the you know, you, you take the weeds out of your garden, the garden doesn't stay neat and clean, either more weeds come in or you fill it up with something else. You remove a predator from an ecosystem, it doesn't just stay as is, other animals and other problems enter in. You remove a bad dictator from a country, that power vacuum is gonna be filled. So in your life, it's never enough just to remove bad habits. It's never enough just to say I need to clean up my act and get my life together. You you have to fill your life with something new. It's not enough to quit that bad habit that you know is killing you. You have to fill your life up with someone new to take its place. And the parable says if you don't, your condition will actually get worse. It's like how Thomas Chalmers, the 19th century Scottish scientist and theologian famously put it. He said, due to the constitution of our nature, the way God has hardwired us is is similar to nature itself, is that the way we change isn't so much by showing how damaging sinful habits are, that's helpful, but it's not that helpful, but by showing how desirable Christ is. So he called this this wonderful phrase. He said, the expulsive power of a new affection. It's what you need. It's as we grow to love Jesus that our love for the world grows strangely dim. So it's, the total, it's similar to the total reorientation of a man and a woman uh, when they have a baby. And, and so everything changes. They may have spent their weekends a certain way, their money a certain way, their priorities a certain way. A lot of things had their attention. But the moment, you know this, the moment that little one arrives, it presents an expulsive power of a new affection. Everything changes and I went to see, Alan, I went to see Madison this, this week and she's sitting there and goes, I just look at him. But you know that, like, ours were like centerpieces at the table, like we ate looking at them. Everything changes. It's Elvis getting his first guitar. You know, it's, if you, if you, Put a baseball glove on for the first time. Your life reorients around that love. We will fill ourselves up with something. So reform isn't enough. Revolution is required. We have to have a new king and live under his influence. So Jesus comes in as the stronger one to lead us in a revolution. He does so principally through the Holy Spirit's work to make us love him more than anything else, the expulsive power of a new affection. Well, how does that work out? And that's when you get those next three little episodes. And so verse 27 and 28, Jesus is preaching along, and this woman in the crowd gets so moved and stirred by his sermon that she just exclaims, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. And I think that's when you know you preached a good sermon. (laughs) And I'm still waiting for that. And it's even more noteworthy that, you know, women didn't speak in mixed audiences. And she's just overcome and it makes such an impact on her that she's saying, how blessed your mother is to have such a son that speaks such good words. 
And she's really illustrating the expulsive power of a new affection. She's awed by Jesus' words and full of wonder for him. You know, that women in that culture, even more than today, found their identity and value in their children, especially their sons. And notice that really her exclamation is similar to Elizabeth's when she greeted Mary, Jesus' mother. When Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And yet Jesus looks at this lady in the crowd and says, as great as that was, as great as it was that Mary was my mother, a physical relationship with me is not nearly as important as a spiritual relationship with me. As much as she would have her identity and value so elevated by being my mother, even more, those who believe in me have their identity and value superior, uh, treasured in my sight. So Jesus affirms her but shifts the focus and said, blessed are rather those who hear the word of God and keep it. And what he's saying is what's most necessary is not just that you listen to the word but you take it deep. You engage that word, you, you put it into practice, you obey the word, otherwise, the way the evil one works and your, your fallen nature's work is that you'll get callous to it. If it just becomes information, it's not put into practice. By the power of the Spirit, put it into practice. So he speaks of responsive obedience. That's how we have the stronger one in our life. Well, the next one is reception of the Son, and that's verses 29 through 32. And so that's the whole thing about the sign of Jonah. And so... Jesus gave the illustration of the stronger man to counter the accusation that he cast out demons by Beelzebub. But now he gives this illustration of Jonah to respond to those who are insisting on a sign. They just never had enough. And so really, the heart of what Jesus is saying here, I think, is that the ultimate sign I'm gonna give you is my resurrection from the dead. And so all of you know the most remarkable, distinguishing, singular, mind-blowing feature of the Jonah story is that this fish swallows him up and he lives inside a fish, effectively dead, for three days and three nights and is then spewed back on dry land. And we just kind of wonder what he looked like after that what the stomach acids did to Jonah and how that might have contributed to the power of his preaching when he went before the Ninevites and said, repent, really, repent. And so Jesus is saying through Jonah, you're going to get an even more remarkable, singular, mind-blowing sign in the near future. Like Jonah essentially died in the belly of the fish, but then after three days came back to life even more so. I'm going to suffer for my people's sins on the cross. I'm going to be buried three days and I'm really going to come back to life again and not just to an ordinary existence, but to a glorified existence in a glorified body. I will conquer death itself and I will open heaven up to you. I'm gonna do that by the resurrection from the dead. That's the sign of signs. So then he looks at him and says, if you reject me, when I'm among you, the something greater is among you and I'm preaching God's word to you. If you reject me on the final judgment, Gentiles such as the queen of Sheba and the men of Nineveh, 
who had much less exposure to God's word and exerted much greater effort to hear it and did not see my resurrection, they will rise up and judge you because they took better advantage of the privileges they had than you do. You see, another truth Jesus is saying here that's, that's got to get our attention is that Scripture says with greater light, there is greater responsibility. And so we hear today of this tremendous responsibility, more than the crowds of Jesus' day. We live in light of the resurrection. And Jesus saying, you, you really need to engage my word and engage me. You need to know your scriptures. And you need to know me. If you get apathetic or standoffish to Jesus and in his word, when you have so much exposure and so much privilege, you will be severely judged on that great day. But he's saying to us, I did resurrect from the dead. Now receive me, receive me into your life. And then the third is reflection of the light. So responsive obedience, receive him into our life and reflect the light. And so verses 33 and 36, Jesus speaks about light. And so he describes his revelation, his word as light, which is often done in scripture. And so verse 33, he says, look, I'm like a man who lights a lamp and puts it in the cellar. I'm not like a man who lights a lamp and puts it in the cellar or under a basket to hide it. I'm shedding my light openly and publicly for all to see. And the point is, I want you to enter into my light. I'm not withholding it from you. And from that point, he moves into verses 34 and 35 and saying this, the problem isn't the light, the problem is the person. It's the person's ability to see. So a person with an unhealthy eye can't see clearly. So plunges his life into darkness. Sorry, you know, we can sympathize with that. A person with a healthy eye is able to see clearly, so illumines his life with light. And so we're saying the revelation is not the problem, rather it's the ability or the disability of the person to make use of it. So in the same way, Jesus is saying, I'm shedding my light. If you're not seeing it, the problem isn't my revelation. The problem is with your disability, So the question is, he's asking, what is your inner attitude and the state of your heart? Jesus says in other places, do you have eyes to see? Are you preferring darkness to light? Is there unbelief? Are there sin patterns that you prefer to me? Do you want the void of your heart filled with their influence or with mine? Or in Jeremiah's words, are you going after other cisterns that you prefer? Where do you go when you're not feeling good? What... What do you rely on to give you value and purpose? Is it something else or is it me? Is it living water or a cistern? And that's the issue really. So we pray the Holy Spirit would give us a soft heart before his word. And then finally in verse 36, Jesus moves on and says, if my word lights up your whole life, you'll walk in the light and not only for your benefit, but you'll reflect it to everyone else. You reflect me. It's like the Scottish preacher James Phillips said it this way, our lives are meant to reflect the death of Christ in such a way that men are somehow reminded of Calvary. Like, that Jesus's, that Jesus's gospel starts, starts shining through our lives more and more such that 
People sense a love that lays down his or her life for the good of others and say, where's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? And so nature abhors a vacuum. Something's gonna fill it. And the question of our passage is, who or what will fill the vacuum of your life? You need the stronger one. You need he who is the light of the world. And grace upon grace, that's what he wants too for you today. So may we take advantage of it even now. Amen, let's stand.